But this week we have Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, and if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever, any of you, read the classic children's book, Amelia Bedelia? Okay, we've got some Amelia Bedelia readers in the house. If you're not familiar, Amelia Bedelia is a character in a series of children's books, and she is a maid, a cook, a housekeeper. Uh, She is hardworking, she is considerate, she is kind, she is creative. But she has one major flaw that leads to all of the plot and humor in the stories. She misunderstands everything. She takes everything completely literally. When once she was working in a restaurant, someone said, get me a lemon pie and step on it. So she places the pie on the ground and stomps on it. When told by her her employers to draw the curtains, meaning to pull them closed, she took out pencil and paper and drew the curtains. When told to dress the chicken, she made it a pair of overalls. (laughs) Amelia Bedelia sincerely believes that she is obeying. But if you ask her employers, is she doing what you've asked? The answer is no. Jesus tells His disciples in John 14, verse 15, If you love Me, you will, you will keep my commandments. Our obedience is how we express our love to Jesus. When it comes to following God, who gets to say whether or not we're obeying Him? Or whether, like Amelia Bedelia, we are busy, perhaps sincerely, doing the wrong things. There's a lot of different ideas about what obedience to God will look like. A lot of rules, a lot of systems, a lot of deeply held convictions. Some of them based on Scripture. It's just as much an error to say that obedience doesn't matter as it is to say that our obedience wins us our salvation. Both of those are error. Obedience, according to Scripture, is our expression 
of the love that we have for God, and it's the evidence, the fruit, of a heart that has genuinely, truly been saved by grace. But let's see what Jesus teaches us about the kind of obedience that He desires. From this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, we come away with some questions we can ask as we explore our own hearts. Is our obedience a form of hypocrisy where we, we speak and act as if we are obeying God, but our hearts are somewhere else? This isn't just about looking at others. As we read this and we in our hearts righteously, justly condemn the Pharisees, how could they? How foolish! We also need to be aware that we're not looking for the Pharisees out there. We are looking for the Pharisee in our own heart and the hypocrisy that can sneak in even to the most sincere disciples. So the first question, there will be three questions that this passage calls to mind. The first is, what motivates my obedience? What motivates my obedience? Now we have a bit of a challenge in understanding that happens here because we're entering in an unfamiliar world. And the, the whole basis of the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees is some things we might not understand. The Pharisees were religious leaders, very serious about obeying God's law, and they demonstrated that seriousness, that piety, that morality, by obeying not only the laws that God had clearly given, but also traditional interpretations that added to that law. Uh, out of respect for their elders and respect for those who went before them, uh, they would take those writings, those commentaries, as on the same level of obedience as Scripture. And so while God's law only commanded that the priests wash hands and only commanded that before they would perform a religious duty, someone maybe 100 or 200 years before Jesus' time uh, someone writing about this might have said, for example, well, God called Israel a kingdom of priests and every meal is a sacred act. And so we should wash our hands before every meal. And having written that down, it was incorporated into the traditions and, and suddenly you have this new law. Now, while the Pharisees were a religious group concerned with the law, the scribes, who are also in this story, that was a job. That was a vocation. The scribes were those who had the authority to draft a legal document. And so they had a deep and intimate knowledge of the law and the rules and the traditions and what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And so the Pharisees had this deep religious interest in the law and the traditions. And the scribes had a vocational interest. It was their job. And together they approached Jesus because they see something that, that doesn't look right to them. Verses 1 and 2. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, they're talking about the disciples, but the disciples follow the leading of their teacher. And so by implication, rather than accusing Jesus, they're pointing out the inconsistency in his disciples. They're, they're living a way they're not supposed to live. Who taught them to do that? Must be Jesus. But right from the start, we get an idea of what motivates their obedience. Instead of asking Jesus, like the rich young ruler did, what must I do to be saved? What, what do I need to do? They're looking at others and saying, hey, why, why is he not doing it right? Why is he not doing what he's supposed to do? It's kind of like if you're in a class and you, you, uh, you get your test back and you've got a wrong answer on your test and the teacher's marked something wrong, and you say, no, but, but he got the wrong answer too. That doesn't make your answer any less wrong, does it? No. 
And, and, but that's what the, the Pharisees and scribes were doing. Instead of looking inward at their own obedience, they're saying, eh, 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 look at them, look at them. They're not right. That's a danger that we face. Whenever we become zealous to obey God, to do His will, because it's very easy to compare ourselves to others. And to use our obedience, the times when we do obey, as an occasion to point out the shortcomings of others who don't obey like we do. Jesus knows their hearts. And so in verse 3, He turns the conversation around. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Do you hear how He's just switched the conversation? It's no longer about the disciples. It's not even about hand washing anymore. It's about, why are you following traditions instead of God's law? And then He gives an example. For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he needs not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. This is where we need to step into this world and understand what's going on. Jesus begins with the biblical command. God says, honor your father and mother. And then he points out that the Pharisees had created a loophole. They had in their own traditions and applications and interpretations of the law created a way out of needing to honor their father and mother the way that they would be commanded to. Because especially in, in this day and age that Jesus is speaking to, uh, elderly parents could not rely on Social Security. There was no retirement funds or anything like that. You had whatever cash you'd managed to save up. But mostly you lived with and depended on your family, your children. And so to honor your father and mother required you to make great sacrifices for them, probably to include them in your home and your household, to provide for all their needs. And that got costly, and that's hard. And so what the Pharisees would do is there was a, a tradition called korban or, or something like that where, where you could declare that a certain property of yours or possessions or even all of your stuff is devoted as a gift to God at a later date. It's kind of like a promise. God, you're going to get all my property. This entire herd of cattle is, is devoted to God so no one else can take it. I can still use it, but at a later date that I've specified, it is all given to God. And so if somebody had, uh, you know, if you had a debt and you owed somebody money and they came to you and they're like, well, I'm just going to take one of your cows to pay your debt. You're like, oh, no, no, you can't do that because this has been declared a gift to God and you can't touch it. Only I can. And so they would do this where the command was to honor your father and mother, make great sacrifices for them. And they're like, mom, dad, I can't give you anything. Everything I've got has been declared a gift to God, and now no one else can use it. It was a loophole. It was a way to get out of a responsibility, a, a command that God had given. And Jesus is pointing this out. He's like, what is your motivation here? Is your motivation to love people the way God has called you to love them? Because that is, not, that, is that, that is the purpose of the law. I've given you that command, honor your father and mother, that you may know how to love and treat them. And you have developed a way to get out of it. What's your motivation? Are you trying sincerely to obey me, as the psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 8? I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. Is that what motivates you, that you want to do what I said? Or are you trying to find a way out, it, or out of it so that you can meet your own needs? Are you obeying in order to be respected? Are you keeping God's law just to make someone else happy? What is your reason for doing this? For the disciple, the true disciple, obedience comes from trust because it is obedience to the word of God not to the rules and traditions of women and men 
And so Jesus points out that contrast in verse 7. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. A hypocrite is a word we use for somebody who speaks or acts one way, says that something is important to them and meaningful to them, but underneath that mask that they've created, their, their true desire is for something else. Their heart is set somewhere else. And so Jesus quotes Isaiah, who spoke hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' day. Because hypocrisy is not new to our age. There are plenty of hypocrites today, yes, but it didn't start with us and it didn't start with the Pharisees. It didn't even start with Isaiah. Hypocrisy goes back as long as there is faith. There are those who pretend to have faith. He says, you honor me with your lips. You say that what you're doing is out of a motivation to serve me and love me. But when I look at your heart, that's not what I'm seeing. If you follow God by dressing up your behavior and trying to say the right words, but meanwhile your heart is still set on something else and captive to something else, something that occupies your thoughts, something that uh, directs your priorities, something that tells you how to live and what, what is good. If that's so, then your heart is far from God and your religious talk is hypocrisy. But it's sneaky. Hypocrites can quote Scripture. Hypocrites know their catechism. Hypocrites can sound pious. They can attend worship. But their heart's ambition is not to know and to love God. And that's revealed when obedience becomes costly, when it becomes difficult, when we lose the respect that we thought we'd gain by our obedience, when we're no longer in power in our community and suddenly we're the underdogs, when friends would rather not hear you talk about this stuff and so they distance themselves and don't spend time with you. If our heart is fixed on God, then we cannot lose anything If our heart is fixed on God, we cannot lose anything that matters. But if our heart is set on something else, then yes, it can be taken from us. Something that we hoped to gain through God. Through God, I hoped to have a good family. By being obedient to God, I hoped I'd be financially successful. But those things can be taken from us. And when they are, our true motivation is unveiled. So what motivates my obedience? The other question we see Who models my obedience? Who models my obedience? There's some humor here in verse 12. After Jesus had called the Pharisees hypocrites, the disciples came to Him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? What? I called them hypocrites. I told them they have misplaced priorities. I told them their whole value system is wrong and they're offended by that? No. And then what Jesus reveals is in saying that his main concern is not for the Pharisees. That's not really who he's talking to in all this. He's talking to the crowds that he's called to gather around because what they're doing is they're looking up to the Pharisees. You know, at one point when Jesus had said, uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the disciples were like, who then can be saved? Because their thought was that the Pharisees were the pinnacle, the model, the supreme example of a good and godly and righteous person. And Jesus says, nope, nope. Every plant, verse 13 and 14, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, you're both going to fall into a pit. Don't follow them. 
they are not worth your attention. He's warning them to be careful who they follow. So I would ask, who models your obedience? Who models obedience for you? Who do you look to? Who do you uphold and think, well, that, that's what I should try to be like? It's kind of a dangerous question, especially in this day and age, because it feels like any name that we can answer that question with is going to in some way disappoint us, be involved in a scandal or something or other. But who models obedience? Here's why it's really dangerous. Because when you answer that question, honestly, it shows what you think is really important. Is it the, the hip, trendy uh, Christian author who's got the tattoos and uses all the phrases and has the huge Twitter following and gets quoted in the newspaper? Well, then those things are what's important to you. Relevance, acceptance, image, popularity. Is it the, uh, the, the street preaching, uh, hell and fire and brimstone preaching person who no compromises and offends everybody and nobody wants to be near them? Well, that tells you what's important to you. We may look at verse 9, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, and we think, well, thank God we don't do that anymore. We've got it right. We follow the Bible, just the Bible. But, but I think perhaps we need to be careful and examine our own patterns. Jesus draws a clear line in verse 3. Why do you break, the, on one hand, the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? There are things that we follow and hold to and, and, and expect to see in our role models that are not the commands of God, but the traditions of people. Where has God commanded some of these things that we feel so strongly about? Whether it's the type of clothes we wear, the way that somebody's hair should look, the, the music we're allowed to listen to, or even the things that we put into our bodies. Some of us will consider the most holy person to be whoever upholds those things that I prefer above all else. Meanwhile, the command to love our neighbor. Meanwhile, the command to honor everyone has to give way to the traditions we revere about what a disciple should look like or act like. And so it would be wise of us to step back and ask ourselves, who models obedience to me? Who is my example? Is it those that keep the traditions and patterns that I'm attached to? Or is it those whose obedience is patterned after what God says is most important? It's easy to get trapped in a pit of technicalities. What am I allowed and not allowed to do on the Sabbath? What does the Bible say about smoking? What about smoking this substance? What about smoking in this way? What, is the, what words am I not allowed to speak according to the Bible? Uh, is five miles an hour over the speed limit considered a sin? Because I'm rebelling against the authorities that are established. You know, we can get really caught up in that, can't we? And we, we judge ourselves and judge others by how well we adhere to these things. But what does Scripture say about the purpose of the commandments that are given? You know, if you were here in our Sunday school uh, back in the fall and in the early winter, we went through a series on the law of God, talking about how we keep the law, but more importantly, each week we saw why the law is given. And for example, in Romans 13, verses 9 through 10, we see, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what Jesus was saying that the Pharisees were missing out on. The command that was given, honor your father and mother, was given that you may know how to love. How to love someone. And yet, if you're finding ways out of that, and if you're, if you're finding a way of obedience that, that doesn't follow that pattern and uphold that as the standard, then you've gone way off track from God's intention. And you are not keeping the law, even if you're keeping technicalities. So who models your obedience? Ask yourself this. Who, who do I know that, that loves their neighbor well? Who are the people in my life that genuinely care about others and minister God's love to people? Who orders their life in a way that allows them to care for others and serve others? You know, it might be somebody whose theology I don't totally agree with. Somebody who doesn't uh, live and pattern their life according to the traditions that I thought were important. But they're keeping the law of God by loving their neighbor with the love of Christ. Such people show that their concern is not with traditions and rules, but with the things that are really on God's heart. And so we ought look to such examples and we ought strive to be such people. So Jesus has challenged us to examine what motivates our obedience and who models our obedience. And lastly, let us ask the question, how do I measure my obedience? You know, if you, if you don't know me well, one thing that you need to know is that growing up especially, I was really into rules. I am rule positive. Okay? I loved knowing rules. I loved keeping rules. I loved making sure other people kept rules. I was not fun to play board games with because I knew the rules and I would make you keep the rules even if you didn't know them because if you know the rules, you can have an idea what to expect. Rules are easy to measure. Rules are easy to see. And I can know I'm doing a good job as a disciple if I'm memorizing my catechism, if I'm having a daily quiet time first thing in the morning, if I'm posting the right quotes on Facebook, if I'm singing the right songs as I'm driving in the car. These are all good things. But they're not what God has said, this is how you are my disciple. This is how all men will know you are my disciple when you have memorized Romans 8 all the way through beginning to end. Those are great things, but that's not what they're intended for. What makes them attractive, though, what, we, what draws us to these things and any rules and any traditions that we espouse is that they are measurable. They're visible. I can know when I'm getting it right and I can know when you're getting it wrong. And that's what's important to somebody who's bound by rules. We need to consider carefully Jesus' words in, in verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a person. And when the disciples asked for clarification in verse 17, he said, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This is actually so, such crude language in, in the original language that I've not yet found a single Bible translation that it translates all the words. They cut off some of the words because Jesus' point is very graphic. If you are all worked up over food and drink, that stuff just goes into your mouth and it ends up in the toilet, is what Jesus says. That does not make you holy or unholy. So stop being so concerned with what's, what people are eating 
and drinking and wearing and all this stuff. The kingdom of God is not a matter of these things. What God is concerned about, Jesus tells us here, is your heart. Your heart. And I can't know your heart just by looking at what you're drinking or how you're dressing or whether or not you say a a prayer out of habit before you eat a meal. Verses 19 and 20, he says, For out of the heart come these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Breaking this tradition doesn't make anyone unholy. It's not the command of God. Here's why we make up our own rules to measure obedience. Because that's really what rules are for. They're to measure our obedience. And here's why we do it. And I'm not talking about any children that live in my house, okay? I, I need, I'm told I need to clarify that. You know, if, you, if, if you've got a kid with a messy room and you say, you've got to clean your room, and 10 minutes later, a room that you know is going to take at least an hour to clean, it, they call you in to come look at this clean, clean room. And you go in, and sure enough, the floor is clean. The shelves are tidy. And wherever you walk in that room, that child is making sure to stand in between you and the closet door. Don't go to the closet. Because what's in the closet? That's where the mess is. Right? But as long as I can point to the floor, look, here's what's clean. Please look at what's clean. Notice what's clean. I feel accomplishment about this. Please look at this. Pay no attention to what's in my closet. That's what we do. That's what rules do for us. I can point to something and say, look, I'm good. I am good. Look how clean I am. Do you see? Do you, do you hear me talk? I never swear. I don't say those bad words. I always give exactly 10% to the church. Do you see that when we sing, my hands are exactly where they're supposed to be? And for some of you, that's here. And for some of you, that's here. And for some of you, that's here. And you're just proving my point. We make these rules about, about things that we can point to and say, I'm doing this right. Meanwhile, I have a whole closet filled with anxiety and malice and pride and anger and addiction and any other of a hundred conditions of the heart that has yet to be shaped and touched by the gospel. So it's the heart. By the heart, we measure our obedience. So how do we go about the business of changing our heart? Well, I have good news and bad news. First, the bad news. You can't. You can't change your heart. There's no amount of rules, traditions, habit shaping. You can scrub the floor spotless, but the closet's still a mess. You cannot change your heart. That's the bad news. Now, the good news, or another word for that, of course, is gospel. What you cannot do, God has done. There's a verse... I feel like I've been using it a lot lately, and I'm going to keep using it because we need to hear this. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart made of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Note the activity of God there. I will do this. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will cause you to be careful to obey. When we speak of obedience, it feels a lot like what we have to do, right? We talk about, 
I've got to obey. I've got to do this. But if Jesus is right when he says that the things that really matter are what comes out of our heart, then the first and primary step of obedience, the most important thing, is that our heart be changed by grace. And the gospel, the good news, is that that has been done in Christ Jesus. Yes, you are forgiven of your sins, but that's, that's a half gospel. That's not all that the gospel is. The gospel is more than the fact that you're forgiven. You're not just forgiven, but the heart that produced all that you needed to be forgiven of is now taken from you and replaced by a heart that desires and loves what is good and that is able to do what God wants you to do. And He makes you able to obey His rules and walk in His ways. God requires godliness. And to the rule follower, we see that and we think, tell me the rules I need. But if God requires godliness, the gospel says, as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, that His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. You don't need more rules. You don't need more commandments. You don't need more people judging and telling you. You need a heart changed by grace that then lives out the gospel. And so we obey. Not to win God's favor and blessing, but because we have it already. We obey not out of fear or guilt that something in us might be punished if we get it wrong, but instead in joy that our punishment was already put on Jesus. He has now cleansed us. He has removed our old heart. He has given us a new heart. He makes us to walk in His ways. So whatever commandment there is, whatever it is that God calls you to do according to His Word, you're able to do it. That's good news. You're able to do it. Not by the way of rules and traditions and technicalities and loopholes, but by loving God, by loving our neighbor. And that's the way of a heart shaped by grace. What motivates your obedience is love for God and His ways. Who models it? Jesus, who expressed the ultimate love in His sacrifice, and all who follow His pattern of loving others. How do we measure that obedience? By what comes from our heart. What comes from our heart is pleasing to God because He has given us a new heart. Let us praise Him for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You that You have uh, seen our need, and You've taken from us a heart that was incapable of doing what you wished and replaced it with your spirit you've made us new teach us to obey not out of fear not out of guilt not out of pressure not in response to the judgment of others set us free from such things fill our hearts not with not with rule keeping and laws and technicalities fill our hearts instead with the knowledge of your grace and the desire to share it and spread it, loving our neighbors as we have been loved. We thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.